out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the saxophonist. It's the one and only Larry Stebbins, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry was in various, well, lots of bands, including especially the 80s uh, world that we're particularly interested in, Weekend and also then Working Week, but has played with a phenomenal amount of other musicians, bands, etc., etc., dating back to the 60s and is currently going to be making more music this year, 2023. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and the musical awakening that might happen or happened. Anyway, Larry, it's over to you. Um, Yeah, but in my case, it was jazz. I'm being a saxophone player. <laughs> the whole history of saxophone is American jazz, really. Yes. My father had been a professional musician. He actually ran a band in a hotel in the in Western Supermare throughout the 30s. And when I was a small child, he took me to see lots of the great jazz greats when I was like 10, 12 years old, things like that. So, um, I mean, it's probably going off the subject for a bit for your programme, but um, I bought a record called Africa Brass by John Coltrane when I was 12. And um, that really was my major sort of first big epiphany. Yes. And I was already playing in a sort of mainstream band at that time. Um, So I listened to that over and over again and played along with it and uh, I vividly remember playing it with this mainstream band who were all like in their early 20s and I was just 12 or 13 and I got to us played my played remember playing a solo on it which I thought was great I thought wow well, I'm getting somewhere now yeah as soon as I finished the band leader came over and said don't you ever do anything like that again <laughs> they stopped <laughs> asking me so that was the first one but all through the 60s, I mean, because I, I started playing very early and through the late 60s, I was playing in soul bands all the time. So I grew to love Junior Walker and King Curtis and the whole sort of Motown explosion that happened in the 60s, really. Yes, you were the you, you were the ideal age. Just going back slightly. So your parents were obviously... And they they obviously grew up and went through the both wars, didn't they? Did yeah. that were so were they particularly musical? Did they have that kind of massive influence on your life? Oh, my father did. Yes, he started playing uh, trumpet in Salvation Army bands in the twenties when he was a teenager, and then by the thirties, as I said, he was running his own bands in Western Supermare and had a sort of nine-piece band in a hotel for about ten years. Um, and my mother was a, 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 a school teacher and she played the piano. Right. My uh, God. I actually did my first ever paid gig when I was 12 with my in my father's dance band. So from then on, I was always playing in dance bands and probably far too much. Wasn't very good for my schoolwork, I'm afraid. No, but but obviously it's had a massive effect. Did you get into things? Uh, did your father, did he ever take you or did he go to the Battle of Bouley, this kind of famous kind of fest of jazz festival where there was the, you know, a fight broke out between the, the sort of new jazz people and the, uh, oh, right. 
The, no, the... I do remember hearing about that because, um, yeah, it went with the trad jazz people and the modernists in the 50s. Yes, the yeah. Battle of Greeley. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I was only like eight, nine, ten at that point, so I didn't really take a lot of notice. No. I did back a bilk, I must admit, but I soon went off that when I discovered modern jazz. <laughs> yes. So were you at all influenced by the kind of the beat generation? Did they, you know, people Absolutely. like... Absolutely, yeah. I basically... If I couldn't be John Coltrane, I wanted to be Jack Kerouac. Right. So you, you, the other you, thing that rather destroyed my education. Yes, the work of uh, the character of Dean Moriarty and um, yeah, such people. Oh, right. So it was one of the, actually is relevant because that was one of the things that both Simon Booth and I were heavily into in the early days of Weekend was the whole Beat Generation thing of Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Um, and Jack Kerouac, and uh, that whole sort of style thing, the whole sort of beat vibe, the French New Wave cinema. Yes. Um, all that sort of thing, which was quite a big influence on Weekend, really, when we started. Yes. Did you get into Bebop then? Because I know with Kerouac, he often talks about it. Because I remember getting, you know, on the road and then sort of, sort of being very excited and mesmerised by all these names he he sort of put in the book and then trying to sort of, you know, get the records, which were often from a record library and listening. And it was quite hard work. It wasn't the sort of thing that I was very, I you know, I had to pretend to like it. You know, I was in that, you know, you go through that phase in life often, don't you, where you want to feel cool and groovy. So did you get into Beat? The, the be um bebop kind of jazz and that kind of style and cab cab callaway no not really i didn't because um when i because I, as i said i started playing very young when i went up to big school there was a jazz club and they were all sort of doing a levels um but uh i got introduced to thelonious monk and ornette coleman and cecil taylor and people like that so i actually thought bebop was really old-fashioned and of course this was this was the start of the 60s where any music more than about two years old was really out of date and old fashioned. So I never really got into bebop very much. It seemed like old man's music to me. Yes. So I was much more interested in the sort of the freer end of jazz. But I also did like the, oh, I don't know. I mean, I was, I really got into Miles Davis and later Stan Getz and people like that. Yes. Well, I remember, you know, I love Supreme, you know, I went, the yes, I can get into that kind of blue, really good. I really struggle with Bitches Brew, actually, because that, that was a bit too much. Did you did you sort of manage to digest all those kind of artists and, and um, major works at that period? Well, I tried to. Yeah. <laughs> it's what you do when you're a teenager, isn't it? And you're trying to learn your craft. Yeah. I mean, Kind of Blue was obviously a huge record and that was... Um, because I met, I started playing with Keith Tippett in 1966. Right. And we were both heavily into Kind of Blue. And there was also a Stan Getz album called Focus that we played a lot. Um, so that, and that was the sort of, I don't know, it was the sort of mod end of, of, of culture at the time as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, did you, I mean, at that stage, you were almost the perfect uh, age to sort of experience the sort of, the 60s counterculture did that also come into your into your life by sort of 65 67 you yeah you were you were right the right age weren't you to sort of be experience this kind of exciting new form of psychedelic music and 
all these classic rock bands from the sort of West Coast as well as London? Yeah, it, well, I was. I moved up to London in 1967, but uh, as as it happened, I was then playing in soul bands. So I did actually go to places like the, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the clubs now, but the, the places where Soft Machine and Pink Floyd were playing a bit. Oh, so you went to the UFO club, Joe Boyd's UFO That's club? Right. yeah, yeah. And did you, you didn't by any chance go to the, the Alley Pally in 1967 to see the 14-hour Technicolor Dream with Pink Floyd and Arthur Brown? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's slightly different. Uh, I was playing Sam and Dave and James Brown at the time. <laughs> right. So you were so a bit of a culture shock, a culture clash there, I suppose. Yes. And did you leave school at 16? Yeah. And that was it. And was it going to, you were just going to do music and that was the only thing that was in your life yeah well in those days in bristol there were lots of resident bands in the ballrooms quite big bands 10 12 piece band with big brass sections so i went straight from school at 16 straight into the local mecca band yes absolutely and western supermere i always sort of get oh, well i come from bristol that was that this was bristol not western supermere that's where my father comes from oh right i just win but i think we went to a pontons or butlands there when the very early 70s it was kind okay. of it all seemed very exciting so when the 60s happened i mean you know came to an end more than happened and you were at that sort of kind of next decade and you'd been doing your soul bands what what then happens for you in the 70s how do you navigate this next period um in 1970 i was working in a resident in the resident band at the top rank ballroom in bristol um i'd just been i'd actually spent the winter in beirut playing in a soul band in a cabaret club playing again james brown mainly yes. i was in the top rank ballroom and I got a call from Keith Tippett who was forming a big band which was Centipede 50 piece big band um, which got bigger and bigger and bigger so that had Robert Wyatt in it from Soft Machine, Bob Fripp from King Crimson, um, Zoot Money, he was he just married Julie Tippett, uh, sorry he just got married to what, who had been Julie Driscoll. Yes. Um, so suddenly everything took off then and we started doing lots of gigs and I got to know nearly all the London jazz scene, really, all of it very quickly. My God, you did. Yes, they, they were the heavy hitters, weren't they, of the time? Yeah. It was. It, there was nothing frivolous about this music, was it? No, not, no, no. It was quite, yeah, it was quite hardcore. It was, it was yeah, I mean, it was a huge band and an amazing experience, really. And how long did that last for? Um, I think it probably lasted for about three or four years. I mean, we didn't do a lot of gigs because it was very expensive having a band of 50 people. Um, and the first couple of gigs I did, I think they actually chartered a plane for us. Oh, that's amazing. To go to Bordeaux that was the first, one of the first gigs. And then um, we did uh, several days in on a festival in Amsterdam. But yeah, it was amazing times and there was an amazing lineup of musicians in it. So this is set, is it set Tim? No, what, what's Septober the album? Energy. Yes. Septober Energy. Yeah. Septober Energy. Yes. Worth is it is it worth checking out and check uh, tracking down? Oh, I think so, yeah. It has become quite a classic, I think. Yes. 
So then, so as the sort of decade was progressing, obviously, you know, the UK was going through their political strife and endless kind of problems in the government and various other bits and pieces and paranoia. There was a lot of poverty at that stage as well. And then there was like the birth of heavy metal a bit and then prog rock and glam rock and various other things. How did you then navigate that next period up to sort of the mid 70s? Um, I was mainly working doing function bands, nightclubs and pop sessions in the daytime. Yes. And I and what's it and what sort of people were you sort of doing sessions for? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember because one of the things that made me stop doing it was that I got tired of turning up at the studio and being given a piece of paper to play, and then at the end of the session someone would say, Well, who's this for? <laughs> <laughs> like working on a conveyor belt. Yes. I, I do I did actually do a complete album. Well, I think I played on most of a Tyrannosaurus Rex album, but I don't really remember very much about it. And I right, my sort of thing. So, because I think I did, I did an interview last year with a guy. I think his name Henry Lowther. Henry Lowther. Yes. Trumpet player. Pardon? Trumpet player Henry. Yes, Lowther. that's the one. And he played. Yeah. And he played with people like um, I think he played at Woodstock actually, but he also. Yeah, he played Keith Hartley band. That's it. Yes, I was like, oh, fantastic! You know, I've I've met a few people. I've done a few interviews. Mostly the bands that no one's ever heard of, like the Incredible String Band or Melanie, or you know, um, yes, that band as well. So I thought, oh yes. Funnily enough, funnily enough, Henry Lowther replaced me in the first ever soul band that I worked in in London in 1967. <laughs> right. Okay. And he's still going strong, isn't he? So well. Yeah. 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 But I think he also did all those sessions. I think from memory, yeah. this was last year, I think he was just like constantly during the day just doing sessions all over the place and, work, you know, even like, oh, this is Nick Drake. Okay, I'll just put a few bits on that and off I go. So it, none of it really meant anything. It was just like a nice little gig and no, a bit of money. He was much more, much better at it and much more successful at it than I was. <laughs> Good old well, I did do quite a lot and I survived. But I mean, I, all the time I was really much more interested in playing jazz and, and, and improvised music. Yes. So as the 70s progressed, did you, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you're in London and there's the punk scene that sort of develops. Did that just kind of pass you by at that point? Um, not entirely because, but I was, as I said, I was playing improvised music and um when I met Simon Booth, that another thing that we had in common was that he came from a punk background, and there were a lot of parallels with the between the improvised music scene and the punk scene in lots of ways. That they were they were both pretty anarchic. They were both uh, a sort of ethic of do it yourself and don't worry too much about offending people. So the 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 improvised music scene at the time, which was fairly hardcore and uncompromising. Um, was a sort of parallel in some ways to what was happening on the punk scene. Yes, absolutely. And did and did as and as you sort of went through another decade from the seventies to the eighties, did that sort of give you any change in sort of your musical direction at that point, or were you just was it just kind of you know the same the same routine? No, towards the end, by the sort of the second half, late eighty late seventies, really, I decided. I wasn't going to do any more sessions or play in nightclubs or do any of that sort of stuff anymore. I was just going to play jazz and and uh, improvise music. Right. 
so but what happened was that I and I was getting fairly successful working mainly mainly in Europe where all the work was and all the interest was and I was actually in Italy uh with a band with Elton Dean's band Nine Cents which had Keith Tippett in it and Louis Maolo and Harry Beckett the trumpet player and Harry Beckett and I were sharing a room and he said uh would you I've been offered a session a pop session you, do you fancy doing it and I thought and normally I would have said no because I'd stopped doing sessions years before but because it was coming through Harry Beckett who I'd known for a long time who I really respected and I found that he'd been he had been given the lead to do it by Robert Wyatt who was I also knew from Centipede so I thought yeah. oh well, it sounds interesting so um I said yes, and that was viewed from a room the first weekend record. Right, blimey. Yeah, so that was the... the um, so Weekend is kind of one of those really cult bands, haven't they? Which I think I've done... Yes, I've, I've um, done an interview with Simon Booth and also Spike as well. Oh, so, right. you, yeah. so have you... So you met though You work with those two guys? Well, Simon, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the same Simon Booth that was the other half of Working Week. Yes, so that's right, with the slightly um, tricky thing of changing his surname, really, wasn't yes, it? Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so what was Weekend? Was Did you enjoy the experience working with Weekend? Oh, it was great, yeah, because I turned up uh, the night before I'd been in playing in Newcastle with Tony Oxley Quintet, which was really hardcore, uncompromising, heavy duty improvised music uh so i got the train down from newcastle to london went to the studio and i met weekend which was simon booth uh, alison Staten, and spike and harry beckett and i and a baritone player called olaf fass were the going to be the brass section so they played us this track to play on and it was sort of like a bossa nova and I'd spent, and it actually sounded a little, it did really remind me a bit of girl, of uh, the girl from Ipanema, <laughs> which I'd spent years and years playing in nightclubs and couldn't stand. No, <laughs> quite. I was never very much into bossa nova anyway. It always seemed rather a sort of anemic, sanitised version of uh, real Brazilian music. But anyway, uh, it wasn't really quite bossa nova, and... Uh, there was a strong sort of James Bond, uh, James, John Barry influence. James yes. Bond, right, but John Barry feel about it. And there was this lots of room for Harry to solo on it. And these guys were young and it made me sort of reassess things, really. And I just thought, oh, well, this is quite interesting. This is a bit weird and very different from what I've been doing. And I quite fancied playing some tunes and stuff a bit more melodic. So, um so after that, when the record came out, they started uh, doing gigs and Harry and I did the first couple and then they couldn't really afford Harry as well. So it just came down to me and I did all the gigs after that. And then we did, an, we did put a couple of singles out and we did more gigs and some touring. Uh, made yes, an album. Because this was all on Rough Trade Records, wasn't it? So did That's you right. work on The View From Her Room and Past Meets Present? Was yeah. they, they were the ones. And you did the first album as well. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 
Yes. And did you, did you have an instant chemistry with Simon at that stage and Spike? Yeah, well, it was Simon particularly because uh, even though he was quite a lot younger than me, as I said, we were quite into the same sort of things about that sort of general beat culture stuff. And we were quite into, well, I don't know, various bits of philosophy like Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism and things like that, Gen general beat stuff. Yes, loneliness. And by that time, I'd moved, actually moved back to Bristol because I didn't need to be in London anymore because all the work I had was in Europe. So I thought, right, I don't need to be in London. It's a lot cheaper to live in Bristol. Go back to Bristol. Um, so when weekends started working, I would stay with Simon, who at the time was living in a squat in Camden. So I used to go and stay with him. And uh, when work weekend eventually sort of parted company, I would still go and stay with him whenever I had gigs in London. Yes. So we spent quite a lot of time together. Yeah. Did you, um, at that stage, I mean, there would be this sort of, there'd been a slight... I suppose there'd been the, the Blitz Club, but there's also, you know, the Robin Miller, you know, the producer who started yeah. working and creating quite a soundtrack for that sort of period of the early 80s. Did, did those kind of, I don't know, sounds influence, start to influence you from weekend to working week? Oh, I think so, yeah, because Robin Miller produced the weekend album as well. Right, I should know that. <laughs> so um that was the start of it all really right he did it he was the um, man yes so then how, so when 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 working week started this was kind of 83 which is a great year for music um and a great decade as well did it did you sort of um have Alison as the vocalist at that stage from weekend no no, no we did what actually happened just a bit of a long <laughs> random story this but for, what the last sort of tour that Weekend did, some bright spark in a booking agency somewhere or other decided it would be really good if Weekend did a tour of two, a two or three week tour of France with a band called the Virgin Prunes, who were a sort of Irish goth punk band. Yes, that must have been an interesting We were heavily into cross-dressing and candelabras and a bit of sort of reaction God. against Catholicism. And uh, we did a tour with them in France and they had a their audience and we had ours and their audience hated us and our audience hated them. <laughs> and I think that finished Alison off, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, oh god what a strange lineup it was really weird a couple of the gigs were really i mean we played one of the big venues in paris and it was their audience and it was really quite scary um but then the last night of the gig it was our audience on a council estate in nancy and afterwards i spoke to them and they said oh that was really scary because it had been the working week, the weekend audience. Yes. So not long after that, Alison decided she didn't really want to sing anymore. I no, think we did, I can't remember whether that was before or last. We did a an album with Keith Tippett playing piano live at Ronnie Scott's. Right. Because I'd, but I was sort of, I just because Keith was one of my old mates, and 
we just thought it'd be nice as we were doing Ronnie's to do a, a sort of final thing with him playing the piano. So that was the last weekend record. Yes. Then, and then, sorry, carry on. And then I said, and that was the end of the weekend. So then with, with, with Alison deciding to go and it was just you and Simon, then how do you navigate that next bit of the band? Did you then at that stage get the name and think, right, we're, we're on a mission here for the next period? Well, what actually happened was that I was staying, I, I can't remember what I was doing in London, but I remember I was staying with Simon in his flat in London. And he said, one day he suddenly said, well, this is amazing. I just found out that View From A Room is a big hit in this club where people are dancing to, to fast Latin jazz. Um, and I really think we ought to form a 14-piece Latin jazz dance band. And being the cynical old pro, I said, well, that's great. Uh, we might get a gig in a pub, and if we're really lucky, we might earn our bus fare home. And he said, no, it's not like that at all. These are all young kids, and it's really exciting, and it's a completely new scene. So uh, he took me there, and it was the jazz room at the Electric Ballroom, and Paul Murphy was DJing, and it was packed with mainly 18 to 20-year-olds, very mixed audience, and everybody was dancing to fast Latin jazz. So that was the start of Working Week, really. Yes. And how did you manage? Did you have any other vocalists before you got Juliet? Well, yeah, the first, because the first record is um, Vencer Amos. So what happened with that was that just after this, he we were talking about what we were going to do. And because I suppose because View from a Room was very popular in this scene, um, there was a bit of an incentive to make a similar sort of record but because Simon was also very un in all involved in left-wing politics and he was very interested in what was going on in Latin America he uh he wrote this song called Venceremus which was going to be a benefit for Chile Solidarity campaign yes so he rode in all of his friends and everybody he could think of who was interested in those sort of in that sort of general left-wing politics and in the sort of what you call the liberation struggles in the South, in Latin America, really. So that included Robin Miller, who produced Spencer Amos. He got in Tracy Thorne from Everything But The Girl because he was old friends of Ben and Tracy from years before. Right. And uh, Robert Wyatt, because he knew he had a, his father had been a uh, a manager and uh, they, his family lived next door, if I'm, I think I'm right in saying this, his family lived next door to Soft Machines manager, uh, who I also knew was a guy called Sean Murphy at the time. So he got in touch with Robert White, which is originally how he came to ask Harry Beckett and I to do the git, to do the first uh, week weekend session. Yes. So, uh, and uh, we sort of got a whole band together to do it no one got paid um but then there were some that dragged on a little bit because there were some contractual difficulties but when Venser and Venser Amos came out it was really popular um so then we did another record uh so after that we did another record with I got Julie Tippett in who who had been Julie Driscoll because she mm -hmm. was an old 
nine as the next singer. And we were going to have a, a band with a fairly sort of floating lineup. The idea was that it was like a bit of a community sort of project, really. But obviously, the the tough realities of economics and <laughs> the way the showbiz works meant that it ended up it, that became less and less practical as things went on. Yes. And had you been sort of slightly, I know it's funny you mentioned the benefit gigs, because I think everybody had some one of those or two of those posters in their kitchen or hallway, you know, some sort yeah. of, it was, it was of its time, which, um, yes, if only we'd archived them all now, but yeah, it was quite something. Were you, had you sort of started to see that kind of scene that, you know, people like Sade had sort of developed and started to feel quite excited that there was an audience for, for what you wanted to do? Well, yes, but I mean, everything but the girl and I mean, I th I'm not sure about everything but the girl, but definitely Simon Booth introduced Sade to Robert Miller. That's how she came to record with him. Right. So we all knew each other. Um, some of us played on each other's records. Uh, wrote some songs together so it was and we all had the same producer so we were part of the great all three bands were part of the great what was known as the great British jazz revival of 1985. Yes there you go so how did you find or how did Juliet sort of come on the scene? Well we had um when we started when we after we'd signed to Virgin we just we did really need to get a, pro, a regular singer um, so we tried out, we did some auditions for for a short time. In fact, I don't, we never recorded with her and she only did about two or three gigs, but Colin Drury did it from Swing Out Sister. Oh, yes. But we only did, that didn't really work out. Uh, I think she only did maybe two, three gigs. Um, was, was the squat scene quite a big thing for the kind of music music community at that stage because it it seems like everybody I remember Sade saying you know she wrote that song when am I going to make a living mainly because she was just broke on the underground and and sort of living in squats and I know from Swing Out Sisters story you know it was squat land and everybody was a little bit desperate there was all I mean obviously there was the whole other sort of punk scene and anarcho-punk scene and everybody was a bit young and desperate claiming unemployment benefit and enterprise allowance schemes which I think that's why there were so many bands from the 80s, because that that particular scheme, I think it was the Enterprise Alliance scheme, allowed people to sort of, if you've had a thousand pound in your bank account, you could then sort of have a year being self-employed, getting a bit more money than you would on the dole, but you still got your housing benefit paid and your council tax paid, and then you could just go and do your music and there were these kind of outlets venues you know music papers there was the radio people like John Peel so it did sort of help that creative scene at that time didn't it yeah well there was yeah I mean things were quite rough at the beginning of the 80s <laughs> and there were a lot of people living in squats I mean there was a big housing problem in London for younger people um it had been pretty difficult at the end of the 70s and then and yeah, lots of musicians were surviving on social security, really. Yes. And I just wondered if that that kind of desperation and also that sense of community where you really kind of got to bump into each other helped sort of make the scene a little bit more electric than it oh, might certainly. Be. Yeah, it, it definitely did. Yeah, there was a lot of sort of cross-fertilisation amongst the, the sort of young musicians in that sort of period in the early 80s. Yes, and also during that period... 
in you know we had Thatcher in 79 and then it was the Falkland War then there was the miners you know crisis and then there was Green and Common so there was a lot of kind of like we all thought we were going to die didn't we at that stage or society was going to fall apart or we were just going to I don't know it was annihilation was in the air at the time well yes but yeah and but there was also uh the sort of left-wing politics in general were really um were very it was a lot more common in those days yes well um, i think a bit later on we had the red wedge movement didn't we which yeah. which also sort of helped get people quite excited so um, well it was actually it was all a big reaction against thatcherism yes and um easily there was the minor you know all the miners strike i mean working week and I mean, working week were involved in nearly all of those benefits. I mean, we used to see meet Alexi Sale everywhere on a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, we did. In fact, one of the bizarre things that happened was that we did. Uh, there was a huge benefit for the miners at the actually at the Festival Hall in London, and because <laughs> someone in the Labour Party had come across Venceremus, which means we will win mm -hmm. so they decided that we should show close the show wham were the main artists and they packed the place but we closed the show and we actually had oh let me god have, um i'll have to think of their names we had arthur scargill and uh ken livingstone on stage with us playing tambourines while we played fencer amos at the end of this benefit for the miners nice it's a lovely image and you got to sort of you know, have wham supporting you which is even better so um well, I, no i'm not sure they were supporting us they were definitely the big draw <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's nothing like a like an anthem though isn't it did paul weller also because he was going through the style council period and he was getting into a, a lot more of a jazz sound was was he also hovering around sort of trying trying to get into your vibe um i well, I hesitate to put it that way, but he was actually there at the gig that Ronnie Scott's that we did when Keith Tippett played and we recorded that album. And it wasn't long after that that he did the Style Council album with the picture, which I've forgotten the name of now, which is a gorgeous album, the one with the picture of the Eiffel Tower on it. Yes. I think there was some cross-fertilisation going on there, yeah. Yes, I think we... I've always, and we did... And we did some of the Red Wedge tour. I mean, I think I've always loved Paul Weller's music. I think he's a fantastic musician. Yeah, and there was there was like, was it Martin Kemp, the guy called Junior, Jimmy Somerville? Oh, Junior, yeah. He was all there. There was, um, yeah. yes, members of the specials, I think. Was it Jerry Dammers was there as well? Wasn't yeah. he? It was quite a lineup, you know, it was quite. So did you get on the bus and go around doing it or did you just do the occasional gig? We did. We were when that big the first when the big Red Wedge tour was happening. We were actually on tour in Europe. We just did the last three or four gigs. Uh, I can't remember which ones they were, but I remember doing Liverpool. I think we did Sheffield. We did the last one in London as well. I remember doing that. Yes, so when did you manage to get signed to Virgin for the first album? Did you? Um, was that did you have a bid in war at that stage for the for your sort of music um yeah i suppose we did yeah i mean after the success of 
um, events at Amos, there was quite a lot of interest. We were definitely, um, yeah, we were definitely quite cool for a while in London. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the album, you know, I got it with the with the twelve inch as well, which is all very exciting. Did the, did that session come together really well? And you had obviously Robin Miller producing. Did you get all the material well sort of um, demoed before you went and um, recorded it? Um, well, we'd done quite a lot. We were doing, we'd, we'd done quite a few gigs and trying things out. By this time, we'd got Juliet Roberts singing in the band regularly by the time we actually started touring properly. Um, we went into the studio for, we signed to Virgin, did some more gigs. Oh, how did you get Juliet? Did you say, you, have you mentioned that? How did Simon, she? Simon, I think we put another advert in after after Corinne Drury. I think we just put another advert in Melody Maker with no name, just said, you know, band needs singer. And yes. Simon found her somehow or other. And he just rang up one day and said, Oh, I found, I think I've found someone. Um, uh, so I've got her to come to the to to the rehearsal room. So she just turned up at the rehearsal room and started and and sang with us, and it sort of took off from there. Really, did you feel like a a tight three piece at that stage? No, well, not initially. No, it sort of takes a bit of time to do that. But once we started working with her, and once we started recording with her, particularly, then it all. Then it all fell into place, and she is a she was still is a fantastic singer, and yes. it was different because she had that sort of soul background. She was very passionate in her singing, and it suited us perfectly. So, and it was a really good combination in that um, we were all from different backgrounds, really, which yeah. was part so of the interest. So when you came to sort of put the the record together, what whose idea was it to start with? Inner City Blues, the classic Marvin Gaye uh, track. Um, well, it's quite a long time ago now. I can't probably <laughs> exactly all the details, but as I remember it, we got quite a lot of we got some music written. We went into the studio and recorded it, and we'd done. We went in for. I can't remember how long now, but we recorded a batch of stuff. And um, when we played it to Virgin, they had to listen to it and they said, well, this is all great, um, but we'd like you to do some more. Um, and we had some various things that we wanted to change in the band. So halfway through that record, we changed the band almost completely. And went back in again with a different band and um Simon it was Simon's idea to do inner city blues Marvin Gaye had done was had been very successful not long before that with sexual healing and a yes. couple of other big records in at that point in the 80s um and so it was Simon's idea to come up with inner city blues and do a completely different version of it Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, no, it's, it's... and it was again one of those sort of cross fertilization things because we started talking about how to do it, and I said, and he said we should put a bra, you know, we should have lots of brass on it. So it was my idea. To, I didn't actually write the arrangement for that, 
uh, it was the only thing that I didn't write the brass for, but um, I wanted to do something. I didn't feel confident enough to write a big brass arrangement at the time. So we got a guy called, I think it was Nick Ingham did it. And I said, I want to do, I want you to do an Oliver Nelson arrangement of this. And Oliver Nelson was a very famous jazz, American jazz uh, saxophone player who was also a fantastic writer and arranger. So that's why we had that quite complicated and quite difficult, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. But a great opening. But then my favourite song, Sweet Nothing, what was, what, how did that sort of come about? Was that much more of a band collaboration at that stage? No. Um, no, I mean, the, 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 in the initial day, I mean, it's it's very difficult when you start writing with someone to re remember who wrote what, and people tend to get very sort of parochial about bits that they wrote and bits that mm. he wrote and all that sort of thing. Sweet Nothing was Simon. I yes. helped nail down the melody, and I did the arrangement, but the lyrics for that and the, really the strength of the melody and the idea of the song was Simon completely. Yes. One of the things I love about that song, particularly now that Simon has gone, is that it, to me, it completely summed up his philosophy of life. There's some lovely lines in there, like, there's no easy life, there's no easy way to a new life, my friend. Sometimes you have to feel the pain. Pick yourself up and start over again. Uh, have faith in yourself, believe in yourself. And that really sort of summed him up for me because he was he, he was indomitable. Yes. Yeah, God, what a, yeah, it was fantastic. And then, I mean, I won't go through the whole album because you'll probably go, I can't remember the next lot. But yes, Who's Fallen Who? Can you remember how that one sort of came about? Oh, well, that was to do with the jazz dance scene. That was one of mine. Yes. I mean, the, the, I mean, Simon wrote some of the lyrics for that and we wrote it, you know, together. But it was like that That one was sort of three quarters me. I wrote all the music, did the arrangements. Yeah. And obviously being one of those people who, who, who loved the Smiths and also the work of the Carpenters and Joy Division, you know, romantic melancholia was always my go-to thing. You, you know, <laughs> thought I'd never see you again was another one of those kind of heartbreak songs. Was that one of? Was that a, another collaboration, or was that mostly Simon? No, that was mostly me. Right, my God, you really pulled that one out of your soul. Yeah, I mean, again, Simon wrote some of wrote. I suppose really wrote the lyrics together for that, but it was my idea. I wrote again. I probably wrote most of those lyrics, but. Uh, there, were, there are bits of it that he wrote as well. Yes, and also it was quite a long track. Were you, were you sort of happy to play with sort of the form rather than thinking this needs to be another single from the album? Oh no, no, that was the idea. I mean, I think it was partly, um, it was partly naivety on my part <laughs> <laughs> that you could do long, complicated tracks like that with lots of section changing sections and. But I was I was interested in doing sort of complicated brass parts, and one of the amazing things was that um, when we got to Virgin, we found that particularly Simon Draper and Mark Cooper, who were looking after us, were incredibly supportive and would let us do pretty much anything that we wanted and pay for it. Yes, I think that was the first single, wasn't it? Released. I never thought I'd see you again. 
No, the very first um, Inner City Blues was the very first one, and then uh, then Sweet Nothing, both right. of which did really well, and then the final, the third single off that album was Thought I'd Never See You Again. Yes, God, it's such a strong album. The album it finishes with No Cure, No Pay. Pay. This is one that you. This is one that's credited to you solely. It's, can you remember how you sort of came about this? Came with this one. Um, well, it, it was partly because we were we were there was there was such a big Latin jazz dance scene around at the time, and that was one of my first attempts to write. Um, something along those lines really it's not like it wasn't the sort of fast latin jazz that they danced to but it was just i think it was one of the first tunes i wrote so i didn't really start writing till simon encouraged me in weekend we started doing some writing together and it was entirely down to him encouraging me to write yes so I started doing work, working week i think uh, actually, no, Stella Marina was one of the first things that I wrote. And then um, probably No Cure, No Pay after that. Yes. What was it like sort of then once that album came out? Did you tour it much at that stage? Oh, yeah, no, the whole, the whole um, 1985, the whole summer we were on tour, in, mainly in Europe. Right, there you go. And then, obviously, the tri to tricky second album. What was the sort of mood like with the band at that stage, the, the three of you? Oh, it was great. No, it was really good. We were riding a wave, really. Yes. I mean, summer of 85 had been amazing. We did, I mean, one... one. Uh, it's relevant because it, it's, it's relevant to my um, thing about, my thing about getting our bus fare home, but in the July of 1985, about 18 months after this conversation where he'd said, let's form a Latin jazz band, and I said, we might get our bus fare. We had a fantastic weekend where we did a live show on German TV. Then we flew to Vienna for the jazz festival. We, The following night, we did Montreux Jazz Festival. And the following day, we did the final winding up of the London County Council uh, concert in Hyde Park. And it was just an amazing weekend. And as we were flying into Vienna uh, we, to play on the Vienna Jazz Festival, which was a George Ween American Jazz Festival, we, we were the only European band playing on that festival. Everybody, every touring American artist was doing that gig. Yes. As, we in, as we flew in, Simon was getting really excited and I said being the hardened old bro I said don't get excited we'll be playing at three o'clock in the morning in the toilet with a few warm beers <laughs> uh, but as we were driving into Vienna there were working week posters everywhere and our album was number three in the pop charts so we closed the show on the Friday night after Astral Gilberto Modern Jazz Quartet and Miles Davis in a 7,000 seater stadium um, it was just amazing night. Yes, God, that was. Had had Miles released Tutu at that stage? Uh, no, it was in between. I've forgotten the name of the one before Tutu at the moment, but it was it was before Tutu. Right. Um, so yeah, I can picture the album, but the name has gone out straight out of my head. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yes, the the cover of Tutu is so sort of you know mm. 
start, really. So then the second album, you had a new producer and a different. Was it a different studio you were working at the in at this stage? No, it was still in. Um, oh, actually, yeah, we did. We moved produce. We moved studios. Uh, we used a guy called Ben Rogan, who had been the engineer for Robin Miller. Right. Um. And we did it at uh, the Virgin Studio, Soundhouse Studios in Shepherd's Bush. Right. Um, mm. And we were still, and again, we were working really heavily in Europe. By that time, we'd actually probably were spending too much time in Europe, really, because we sort of started to lose our British audience in lots of ways. But we were it's a bit bizarre really because I was far better known in Europe as a jazz player than I was as a in Britain and it was the same with working week when we were they we they really took to us in all the German speaking countries in Italy and so we spent more and more time there yes absolutely and did you sort of sit down and have a, a think of what you want how you wanted the second album to be yeah it's always I mean because the first one was pretty was pretty successful. It's always difficult to do a follow-up. And what you tend to do is more or less the same thing, but change it very slightly. So there were I'm trying to think what, how much change there was on it now. There's a lot more collaboration on the songwriting, isn't there? Yeah, by that time we decided that actually whoever wrote anything, because it was difficult to it, it was obviously complicated sort of uh, deciding who'd written watch and which and who was going to be credited for it. We decided from uh, after the first album that everything would be co-credited, no matter who wrote it. Right. So that's why after from that point onwards, everything is credited to both of us. Yes. And then you, and you also open them with another cover, don't you, with the Don Van Fleet. Fleet. Yeah. That so was my idea. <laughs> I was the, always a the, big, big fan. <laughs> right. So that was your sort of, uh, let's do a Captain Beefheart. Yeah. What period Beefheart was that? Well, it was on, uh, was it on, it was on Clear Spot. Right. Did that have electricity on it? I can't remember. No, that was one of the earlier ones. That was wasn't that on Safe as Milk? I that's the one. Yes, yeah, Safe yeah, as yeah, Milk. Yeah, that's from the six. That was the early mid sixties. No, yes. Slot was from sort of mid seventies. Yeah, early seventies, something like that. Because at this stage, we'd seen we'd all started getting more obsessed with you know European films. We'd all watched Betty Blue, hadn't we, and Diva, and. Um, yeah, there would there'd been this kind of, and then there'd been absolute beginners, hadn't there? You know, starring people like David Bowie and Patsy Kensett, and you know, directed by is it Julian Temple? So, was, were you kind of excited in in sort of eighty six, eighty seven, doing the second album? Did you feel like you were sort of surfing as sort of zeitgeist here? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it was all going very well. Um, we were pretty popular. We had loads of work on. Um, we were sort of spending a lot of time in the studio, a lot of time writing, and the rest of the time we were on the road all the time. And if yeah. we were, we managed to get three or four weeks off in the summer. <laughs> it was hard work. It was. It is, it is hard work. When you look back, do you realise that those kind of moments aren't going to last for long? Do you sort of think, 
this is great. But like with most bands, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. They have that five year narrative. They have the 12 month sort of honeymoon period of creating the sound. They get the single with a lot of bands, you know, John Peel would give them a play in a John Peel, you know, John Peel session at the Maida Vale Studios. That first album, the little, you know, the van going around all the little venues around, you know, the UK and a bit into Europe. And then the second album, people are getting a bit tired and it's shattered. And then by that third album, it's like everyone's started to really lose the plot, really. Did you did you sort of have that sort of feeling that this was brilliant, but the intensity was a bit in too much at times? Yeah, it was certainly very intense for a while. I mean, I think the second album was all right. There's some good stuff on that. And we were probably much better at writing songs by then. And the band were very tight. And we were, the three of us were, you know, we knew what we were doing and we knew what our, our individual talents were, really. Um, so in lots of ways, it was quite, it was successful. It probably wasn't quite as groundbreaking as the first one, but then that's the nature of the business, as you were just talking about. Then when you get to the third album, it's the third album is always the problem one. Because you can't just do the first two albums again, you have to do something new. So our manager at the time had the idea that we weren't really going to get any more successful in Europe. We needed to crack America. Big mistake. <laughs> we went to New York with an American musician. We spent two or th three months, I think, in New York making a ridiculously expensive record with American players on it instead of using our own people. And um, I mean, the record isn't bad. It's, you know, it, for its time, it's very much a product of its time. Surrender that last record, the, the third record. Um, Juliet was fantastic on it. Um, and we had some really good musicians. Um, and that was our effort to crack America. And yes. what happened was after that, after we'd done the record, we went in to see uh, Virgin. We're just starting a new label, um, uh, the, the Virgin label in America. And uh, the guy who was running the label came in to see us at Virgin in London. And he was a he was a black black American guy, Afro-American black guy. Um, and he said, we're not going to put it out because we haven't, you haven't got a hope in hell in America. Two white guys and a black woman, no one is going to play your record. The white stations won't play it because they won't play it because there's a black woman singer and the, white, the black stations won't play it because it's two white guys and a black guy. Blimey. There you go. That was a bit of a difficult yeah. atmosphere. Yeah. So why, what 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 was the outcome? Did you just Juliet left? Right. Did you I think she could see that her future probably was more on the sort of I mean, this was at the you know, R and B music in America was very successful. There was a band called um was it Loose Ends? Oh, yes, there was Loose Ends. I mean, the people... There one, been... of her, her, one of her closest friends was a woman called Jane Eugene, who was in Loose Ends, who were getting really big in America. And there, a Junior was very big, getting very big in America as well. Junior Giscombe. Yeah. Um, 
And I think she could see that her future was probably, you know, if she wanted to crack America, she was better off doing it on her own. And she was later very successful in America and did yeah. lots of good stuff. Was that was that kind of heartbreaking for you and Simon at that stage? Well, the whole business was a bit of a shock. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was a shock to all of us. Um, and you know, we just hadn't really seen it coming. I mean, there was no nothing. You know, he was the guy was just being completely practical. Yes. But it was a sad reflection on the state of American culture at the time. God, that is horrendous, actually, isn't it? But then yeah. you, but then you, you're plucky, aren't you? Because because this is on ten records, isn't it? This the next album. Still on Virgin. I think we, that was still Virgin. Then I've got some of these things down by the side of me. Yeah, that was. Was that on Ten or Virgin? I can't so remember. I think that was on Virgin, but there was the next label, wasn't there, called Ten, which was... Yeah, that that was part... that's the next one. So what happened then was that um, uh, Juliet left. We went into Virgin um, to talk about our next record, and they were very nice about it, but Simon Draper said, well, your singer's left... Um, the last record was was done all right, but not fantastic. Uh, we think that without Juliet, you're going to do a fairly weird jazz record. So we're only going to give you, we'd like you to do another record, but we're not going to give you anything like the budget you had for the last one. And if you're not happy with that, then no, you're very welcome to leave and... Uh, no hard feelings and find yourself some if you can get a better deal somewhere else then you're welcome to go and we'll write it all off and no hard feelings so yes went <laughs> simon managed to organize uh arrange a production deal with swan yard studios um where they would pay the costs of making another record uh against a, a percentage of the of the fee of the um, royalties when we made it, and or or they could sell it for us. So um, we got free studio time in there, and they put up the money to make the record initially. Um, so we made the record. Uh, I got main got uh, Julie Tippett in again, me Driscoll to sing on it, and we got all got most of our old crew in and some of the younger up and coming fleet people like Alfie Robinson's on it. Um, the, the new sort of young black crowd of jazz musicians that were coming up at the time. Yes. Um, so, uh, oh, actually, no, it's mainly Alfie's. I mean, when we did the gigs, we had all sorts of people on it, but Lem Sesse's on it. Uh, Excuse me. Um, so anyway, we did this record, um, played it to, we sent it off to to German Virgin, which was our best territory. They really liked it. They sent it back to Virgin in London, and so we got a phone call then immediately from Virgin in London saying, "Okay, we made a terrible mistake. We want to re-sign you." <laughs> so, but we so we then moved to Ten Records, and they put. Uh, that record out wow that is that's amazing did you sort of because at this stage you know get into the late 80s and obviously there's another musical shift which i find 
a lot of bands who had started in that kind of say 83 period <clears throat> by 87 88 you know one of the things that comes along which kind of changes the musical landscape is ecstasy you know there's the suddenly this kind of new dance scene there's that Chicago house scene again you know people really want to dance there's the orb there's orbital I think a guy called Gerald you know the dance scene is quite big did that did that sort of influence you or Simon at all the that kind of new kind of interest in in sort of dance music yes because um for a start we sort of started on the fringes of the dancing with that sort of latin jazz dancers and the whole um uh, the, well just that whole scene really so what happened from our end of the scene then was the development of acid jazz oh god yes which Simon was heavily involved in. I wasn't so much because uh, I was a bit sceptical about some of it or the way it developed later on. But and what about Soul to Soul? Because we were all... Well, Soul to Soul came out at the same time, yeah. So the final record that we did was very much loads of sampling. The, the record with Yvonne Wait, Yvonne Wait on it. Yes. Um black and gold that was very much out of that scene and it was sort of on the fringes of the acid jazz scene really and it was very much dance music um so yeah that was the equivalent and it was acid jazz so it was basically it was influenced by all that sort of ecstasy scene and the dance scene yes the face, the, the the famous magazine, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the beautiful people. And then sort of 91, 92, this was kind of towards the end of the band. Did Was there a moment where you all sat down and went, this is the end, to quote Jim Morrison? Um, no, it just sort of drifted apart, really. Um, Simon produced those first two acid jazz albums. He was doing more, more, uh, more production work. I was getting to think more and more that I wanted to do more jazz work, and I was still doing. I mean, all the time throughout working week, I was still doing a certain amount of jazz work when I had time. Yes, working week was so sort of time consuming, but I was starting to do more again by the early nineties. Um, we weren't really part, we were on very much on the fringes of acid jazz movement, really. We weren't part of it in the way that, and then, you know, it was just the movement of time. We'd been really successful and popular in the mid eighties. So by the early nineties, there's always a reaction. Yes. And there were a whole new raft of band of young bands who were sort of, taking over really so it just sort of drifted apart really yeah and I, I was doing things of a band of my own that was doing more sort of jazz rap stuff really still working with the brass section and then Simon got a uh an offer to do a record with an African singer called Baba Marl oh yes god i loved one of their his albums oh god it was really spacious and really ambient it was just a classic. i think that might have been the one that he did with simon then because that was came out on real world and that was the start of the sort of movement of the afro celts really right when he he went to africa and made that album and started 
thinking about the connection between African music and Celtic music and the things that they had in common. Yes. No, it was, um, yes, we all got really obsessed with Baba Mole for a period. And then, you know, Euston uh, Dor and, and all those characters. Yes, it was good times. Thomas Black and the... Thomas McFuma and the Blacks Unlimited. It was the right. there was the Bundu Boys and the Four Brothers and yeah. and various other people that um, yes I, I suppose it was a lot of bands that John Peel used to play that we we sort of also became obsessed with. So it was a good time for world music, really. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it was sort of I suppose the start of the popularization of world music and starting to use the term in lots of ways. Yes, I think my first Glastonbury was like 87 when then Womad was there as well. And I remember sort of seeing quite a few bands there, including the Bundu Boys. Did you did you ever play things like Glastonbury Festival at all? Did that ever sort of come into your world? Well, I did go to the one before Glastonbury in 1970, where <laughs> Michael Evis got the idea of Glastonbury and I saw Led Zeppelin and the Mothers of Invention and Jefferson Airplane and all those sort of people. So that was the Bath and Wales Blues Festival you that went to? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I remember he's always got that story that him and his wife, Jean, at the time, crawled under the fence, didn't they, to get in to see it and went, <laughs> yeah. we, should do, we should do this, Jean. That's a good idea. <laughs> Michael, I'm sure. So I did go to that, yes. Um, and then, but Working Week did it in 1985. Yes, I bet Robert Cray was there as well, wasn't he? He was always... I, we, I remember Star, we went on before the Star Council, I remember that, and it was one of the mud years. Um, and I did it again later with... Um, oh, that was the other thing that started happening in the early 90s, was that I started doing... I, I did a record with a rapper. Well, I found a young guy in from Bath who was a rapper. Um, called Kelvin Swaby, who right. is now the lead singer of The Heavy. Okay, The Heavy. Absolutely huge in America. Yeah. So he did a record with me as a rapper called MC Black. Blimey. And, sorry? I said, blimey, this is, this is all very exciting to try and track these things down, isn't it? Well, that track is called This Is Calling You by QRZ with a capital, with a uh, question mark on the end. Right. I need to, I need to have a listen. Yes, God. So I have other connections coming up because I'd, I'd known Adrian Utley, the guitar player in Porter's Head, for some years. And I started, we did some, started doing some gigs together with uh, Kelvin myself and what became later became the Porter's Head rhythm section. So it was Adrian Utley, Jim Barr, Clive Deemer and John Baggett and myself and Adrian Utley and uh, and Kelvin Swaby. So we actually played Glastonbury in about 91 or 92, I think. Right. That could have been that could be one of the hot years actually, couldn't it? I think yeah, it was yeah, it was a good year. I remember it was getting very dusty. It was probably a lot of um, action at the fence because I think that's when the fence used to get knocked down straight away. I don't think that's even... right. That was one of those year, one of those problematic years, if I remember rightly. 
I think there was one where there was a big fight between the security and some drug dealers from Bristol and it all got a bit messy. Vans were being burnt out. It was it's of its time. It was a bit like Mad Max, you know. We <laughs> festival, the festivals in those days had a bit of an edge, didn't they, to them? So then sort of the 90s then, did you keep that connection with the rhythm section yeah, of Porter said? Um, no, because not long after that, Porter said really took off. Um, I actually had a, I dropped out of music for a few years um, and I wasn't, I, I didn't really do very much through the sort of mid nineties. Right. I got fired and stopped and went off and I went to, you know, went back to university to make up for leaving school at 16. In fact. Nice. What did you go and study? Philosophy. Right. That was a nice break. Did that help? Oh yeah. No, it was great. Yeah, yes. I was King's College in London and did a philosophy degree. Oh, that must have been nice. And then, That's do you genuine. then when when do you pick up the sax again? Um, later nineties, um, and then um, sort of uh, later nineties into the two thousands, I started playing again. Um, I played. I did quite a bit of work with a band. Uh, Playing Robert Wyatt music. Mm. Did you ever um, play? Did you ever play that track called "Pigs"? It was a classic. No. He did called "There's Pigs." It was a very ambient piece. It was very haunting. No, we didn't do that, but we did quite a lot of his better-known things. Julie Tippett was in the band as well. It was basically run by Annie Whitehead, and funnily enough, the brass section was the first ever working week album, uh, working week brass section, which was Harry Beckett, Annie Whitehead, and myself. Right. There's a very nice video from uh, from the BBC, which is still on YouTube, actually, of Robert Wyatt. I think it's called a testament. Testament. They did a special on him, and we played live in the studio. So I was doing that. I was doing more. I did quite a lot of more improvised music again. I played in Jerry Dammer's big band, the Spatial AKA, his big right. orchestra. Um, and then I did a couple of things of my own as well. I did, a, eventually I did a record called Stoneface, which again was Adrian Upley and Jim Barr played on, uh, which was on True Thoughts, which was, uh, was marketed as psychedelic hip hop, which probably makes some sort of sense. <laughs> Heavily sampled, um, lots of electronics, lots of overdubs. Who's what's the late True Thoughts? True that, Thoughts label. Who ran that label? Uh, well, it's still going. It's Bonobos on, was on it. Still is still on it. Quantic Soul was on it. They're based in Brighton. It's a sort of indie, um, I don't know how to describe it really, indie soul ambient sort of stuff. My God, that is very ambient, isn't it? Yes, I can see their lineup. It's quite um, quite eclectic, isn't it, really? Yeah. And amazing. There's just so much music. So then you did, yes, then did Transcendental come out soon after that? Yeah, that after that, I decided I didn't really want to work with computers anymore. I wanted to do a jazz record to go back to my roots. So I did. I then um, basically I nicked the rhythm section from Jerry Dammer's 
Spatial AK Orchestra, which at the time was Zoe Rahman and uh, Carl Rashid Abel on bass and Pat Illingworth on drums and Spry, uh, the percussion player who I'd known from, from years before because he played in Galliano. Right, so you came across though that that scene is kind of bubbling away, isn't it, in the background? Yeah. God, that's 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 a lot of music. So was that the last the last album you did, or did you bring another album out after that? No, that's the last album I did because again I decided I need a break. I've had enough from this, so I actually dropped out of music for the last ten years. I've just started again. Have you? Yeah. And what was the was lockdown? How did you sort of navigate the lockdown period? Was that a time for um yes, sorting out your archives, or did you get a bit tempted with music? Um, well, no, actually, what happened was I decided I'd I need a break. I've had enough. I've been playing since I was twelve. I'm not going to do this anymore. So um, I uh, bought a small boat left my house and went and lived on my boat <laughs> <laughs> and spent 10 years sailing around the North Atlantic, basically. Wow, that is serious. Was this with you and your partner or on your own? Yeah, yeah, just, just me and my wife, yeah. My God. And did you, And how did you, how did that affect you? How did you sort of, um, yes, what was the, the impact on your life? Um, well, it's completely different because it's uh, it's very cheap to live. You don't have to pay any council tax. You don't have a car. You don't have a phone. <laughs> well, you have a mobile phone, I suppose. But yes, and, and then... it doesn't cost you very much, and you can move around a lot, and you don't have very much contact with other people. I suppose a lot of yes, time. Yes, my God. But we did a lot of traveling. We went to the Caribbean, and we went to the Arctic for. We spent three months in the Arctic. Did you have a big boat? I know it's a... <laughs> no, no, not very big. Uh, 37 feet. Yes, my God. You must have a lot of confidence being on the water then. Mm, I suppose so, yeah. I don't know. It's sort of... Thing <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Then, so then, this year then, have you got plans for sort of potentially releasing some new material? Yeah, yeah. I will be. I'm writing at the moment. I'm basically um, just getting back into playing again. I've been doing mainly um, improvised music gigs at the moment, but I am writing. Uh, there's a possibility that um, I'm I'm still in quite close touch with Adrian Utley. Um, there's a possibility of doing something with him and a few other things. Yes, blimey. I so prefer you've... talking about them after I've done them, really. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the same. You know, it's like whenever I say I'm going to do, you know, something, yeah, it's like it almost is the curse, isn't it, really? But anyway, but your spirits is there and you're going to hopefully... Oh, I'm fired up, yes. I'm, I'm well fired up now. I'm very keen. After a long break, I'm just bursting to play again. So and I've got lots of things that I want to record that I'm working on at home. And have you slightly worked on your archives or did you you know just have you sort of tidied all that because you've got this amazing body of work that goes back into the 60s 
Yeah, well, I'm trying to get that together. I'm trying to get on top of uh, technology and things that I've missed out on a bit. But um, I don't know if you've seen, I've, I've actually managed to finally get a website of my own. Yes, I saw the website. Um, <laughs> so I'm gradually putting those things together and I'm, I will, I am gradually trying to get an ar getting archive stuff together because I have racks and racks of old tapes of live gigs and and um, lots of demos from working with writing demos and yes it must be strange do you ever keep in touch with Juliet at all do you sort of ever... yeah well I lost touch with her up until recently but um I've been trying uh, but I've made contact with her again now since since Simon went yes uh, so yeah and there will be um there is talk of doing a memorial concert for Simon in the autumn um, and Juliet and I are going to do it and we will be doing some of the old working week material. Wow, that's going to be very emotional, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But yes, well, look, this has been, well, look, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing. And and like I said, you know, I've got such fond memories of the band and uh, it was okay. a nice, like, counterpoint to the world of indie pop and listening to the Smiths and all these kind of three-minute little tracks that John Peel used to play. But, you know, like I said, I was obsessed with John Peel. So, you know, early sort of rap music, you know, that world of Mantronics, electronic music, and then, you know, people like the Bundu Boys and mm -hmm. all those kind of bands um, that he used to play, his world, his Bulgarian folk music and all that kind of stuff. It was good. You know, it was a great education, wasn't it, really? So um, mm -hmm. it was good stuff. We were yes, I grew up listening to John Peel, really, because he was also one of the first people that really championed the soft machine. Who yes. <laughs> was that the perfume garden you used to listen to? Yeah, this this would have been end of the 60s and in, into the 70s, I suppose. Nice. Yes, he loved his, uh, yeah, Captain Beefheart. It was certainly one yeah. of his favourites, Don Van Fleet. Anyway, look, I'll let you go. But thank you ever so much again for this. This okay. has been amazing and uh, lovely to caught up. And I'll, if you want, I can always send you the link to this and you can always put it on your website. Right. Yeah, please do. I yeah, will. So. Okay. Thanks a lot. And um, thank your wife for um, setting it up. Okay. Take Thanks. care. Cheers. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I'm sure you guessed that. That was me in conversation with the saxophonist Larry Stebbins. Um, if you want to find out any more information, I have put a link to his website in the notes below. Um, this has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.